This is Never Lunch Alone, the show that brings on some of the best sellers and marketers in the B2B space to enjoy some delicious food and talk about some tasty sales tips. The show is presented by Noted Analytics. If you're a rep that hates doing CRM data entry or a manager that wants to see more information on your opportunities and pipeline, check us out at notedanalytics.com. Welcome to the first podcast of Never Lunch Alone. I've been doing this show as a video series for the past year and a half and wanted to share what these experts are saying as a podcast. I'm really excited to have this first guest on. David Premer is the founder and chief sales scientist at Cerebral Selling and author of the book, Sell the Way You Buy. He worked at a number of different companies from startups to Salesforce and a number of different roles from solution engineering to VP of sales. Beyond his experience, I think David has a really interesting scientific take on the psychology and emotional aspects of sales that is really unique. You're going to love this episode. Let's jump in. So David, we got introduced from Tom Stearns and you know, you're talking about how you've worked traditionally with salespeople and now you're working with some marketing people. I always like Tom's background too because he came from more of that, that marketing background, that marketing consulting, and now he's on, he's on the sales side. Um, as you look at sales and where we're going now, I mean, do you see a lot of collaboration between sales and marketing and, and the need for that further? Yeah, like I see not just sales and marketing, but like sales and what I call the rest of the messaging supply chain, if you yeah. want to call it that. Because one of the biggest problems that exists in sales is that you know marketing and sales can certainly get out of sync from time to time. But also there's the problem where salespeople sell something and then the customer success people kind of like unshrink wrap it <laughs> in front of the customer and they're yeah. like, what, what did sales tell you? No, no, we, we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So it's important for everyone to say the same thing. But also because the, especially on customer success and marketing, like they hear things that we don't hear in sales and vice versa. So mm. it's really important for us to collaborate, especially when it comes to like describing like what we do and how we engage with customers. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure so much of your background has, has given you that view, right? Being a solutions consultant, being in sales operations, VP of sales. Is that where you got that, that well-rounded view of uh, all these different roles and how the groups play? Yeah, well, it's partially all the roles and it's partially just like the nature of the companies that you work at. So I've worked for some big companies, but I've also done four startups. And in a startup, you're just all sitting there together. And so you're, you know, by definition, you're kind of figuring it as you go along. And it's important for all those groups to be in sync as you're building kind of the revenue engine for sure. So yeah, yeah just by nature of the companies. Yeah. Was that a, or what was your take on working at those different companies? I mean, just completely different problems, regardless of the size of the company, any, any parallels across the different companies that you worked with? Like through all my startups, sure. like what was the, yeah. same, was the, and, and the large thread? companies? Yeah. Like in terms of sales and, and what you saw was the area that needed to be improved pretty universal, pretty, pretty unique by, by each company. Pretty unique. I would say, yeah. I mean, like there's definitely like overarching things that everyone can work on, but in retrospect, you know, there's different products. Sometimes you're just, one product in like the Gartner magic quadrant of like a million other products that do some, something similar, sure. arguably. Yeah. And then sometimes you're doing something like very unique and, and novel and creating a market maybe Yeah, like no one else is doing. And you're trying yeah. to like, you're trying to fight for like your definition of the problem and the product and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the problems are kind of different depending on. So where did this whole idea of sell the way you buy come from and, and what specifically about the old way of sales did where you think it was broken? Yeah. I mean, so there was kind of, there's two things that kind of, I noticed number one was, there was an empathetic component to selling, which a lot of salespeople were missing, meaning we tend to go out as salespeople and just execute all sorts of tactics that are not categorically ineffective, that are not unethical in any way, but they just wouldn't work on us if we found ourselves on the buying side. And I had this epiphany when I was at Salesforce where, you know, we're running this really, 
awesome team, like lots of hustle, running a great tried and tested playbook. But then I would go back to my desk and people would be trying to prospect into me because I'm a VP of sales at Salesforce and I'm not having any of it. Like yeah. I'm not listening. Yeah. So there's a certain like an empathetic component when I say sell the way you buy, don't use tactics that, that wouldn't work on you. But then also the second piece is the way we actually buy in real life is uh, based on forces that we're often not even conscious of. So, you know, I often give people the example of like, if I were to ask you to write down everything that you ordered for lunch mm. in the last month, and then I wanted, I said, I'm going to take that list. I'm going to show it to your doctor. And we're going to answer the question. Did you, did you order the best thing for you? <laughs> Most people would say no, no, but they would also say like, I wasn't unhappy with what I ordered for mm. lunch. Like I, I didn't have any, you know, kind of, you know, moral conflict or, you know, I was, I was happy with what I ordered every day. Living my life. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so like the, and even things like, you know, where we go on vacation, like if I were to ask you like, what was the ROI of your last vacation? Mm. And like, was that ROI better than going to this other place? Sure. You know, like these things we don't even think about because we make, so we make decisions based on feelings primarily. And those are the mechanisms that we have to help us like make decisions quicker in our minds. It's just based on feelings and emotions. But somehow in the business world, we kind of think, you know, we think that we all of a sudden the decision-making process is different. Yeah. And like, oh, it's all business case and our ROI and we're taught to sell value. And so sell the way you buy is actually kind of coming back to basics around like, how do people actually make purchasing decisions of any kind, mm -hmm. right? And then what if we could sell to people based on those kinds of, you know, subconscious pathways, wouldn't we be in a much better position to have happier, more satisfied customers that convert quicker? So that's what sell the way by means. It means like use an empathetic approach, but also one that's rooted in like an understanding of how people actually make decisions. Yeah, and it sounds much more personal, right? Like, like you were saying, like the reason why you went on vacation was the value that you got out of it, not necessarily like the family's ROI or, or the reason why you ordered that, that meal is because you thought it tasted good, right? And, and, and people buy the same way. I've, I've also heard some people kind of describe that as um, people buy on, on emotion, but justify with ROI and, and business cases. Is that the same kind of idea, just really getting specifically to what's gonna resonate, what's gonna motivate that person on the other side? Yeah, like the way I think about it is like, there's a, a bucket called value, and salespeople are often told to sell value. Yeah, and oftentimes big generic. We, big know, generic, yeah. and oftentimes we say sell value, what we really mean, what we mean is like <laughs> sell ROI, meaning if they make an investment in the solution, then they will either make more money, the customer, or they will save money, right? But we know that like, if that was the case, then we would always order the best foods for us and make the most judicious like clothing decisions that are just based on thermal protection and coverage. And like, <laughs> yeah. we don't do that, yeah. right? And so value, the ROI is a component of value, but value is much bigger. So if you can prove to me, or at least show to me, or convince me that there's a business value in what it is that you're trying to sell me, mm. it makes me feel good, right? Yeah. If you kind of stumble over your business case and you can't really communicate to me like why I should even be looking at your solution, I just lose confidence and confidence is back now. It's a feeling. And think about the purchasing decisions that you made. Oftentimes it's because you had confidence in the company or the product or where they'd be able to take you, even if they couldn't guarantee, you know, what the value, the, the business outcome would be at yeah. the end of the day. So yeah, you know, there, there's a sphere of value where there's a lot of feelings and ROI is a component of that. Sure. And, and as part of this too, teaching people how to buy, right? Because I mean, I've worked at companies where you can lay out the solution, you can lay out all the value. And it's like, we need to have this return on investment, right? It's got to have a payback period in two and a half years and, and, and very hard lines. I mean, does, does part of it fall on, on how people are buying too and getting them past some of those like hard numbers and just into 
hey, this is the value that we think we're going to get and, and let's work towards getting it. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, the ROI or the business case is, is like a forecast. It's like a weather forecast, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. saying, I think tomorrow will be a great day to go to the beach, but I can't guarantee what the weather is going to be, right? And you only know after the fact. And the funny thing about ROI, I call this kind of the binary paradox of ROI, is that you lay out your whole case and it all comes down to one thing. Does the other person believe it? Yeah. Right? And so like if you've done your homework, if you've like, you know, filled that model with like data and input parameters yeah. that are based on like research and things that are believable. Conservatively estimate, right? That's right. Like, oh, <laughs> even if we, if we conservatively estimate yeah, all these factors, yeah. you're still going to come out totally. ahead. It all comes down to like, does the other person believe? And not just believe in the numbers, but in your ability to kind of deliver those numbers. Sure. Or, you know, oftentimes we, we craft these ROI studies and they're based on like, what the, our best possible customers in the most ideal situations. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of the day, it still comes down to like, do I believe it or not? Mm. Because very few people actually measure ROI after, after the fact. fact. Yeah, yeah, I know. And because no one wants to almost, right? <laughs> well, it's too complicated it's, too. Yeah. Like, you know, and this is actually a thing. I mean, a lot of, you know, technology companies, for example, that provide services, let's say like social media, you know, campaign monitoring, Right. And so we're now we're, we have this piece of software and we're trying to figure out well, what's the ROI of like our social media campaign monitoring mm. software. Well, like there's all sorts of inputs that go into it. Sure. There's like an element of, you know, kind of direct correlation between we put out this ad and someone clicked on it and then they converted. But who knows how many other things they saw in the market yeah. before that happened. Right. Yeah. So it's actually very difficult to measure ROI after the facts. So we put together these simplified models and hope people believe them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And as people are starting to make this journey, I mean, is it start from, from the top down and simplifying, hey, how do our customers buy and let's start our, our buying journey and let's start our, our whole, the way we report on opportunities and forecasts and start from there, start more tactically at, at the rep level? In terms of like, how do we re-architect our yeah, selling motion? Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends. Okay, so what's the problem we're looking to solve here? A lot of times, the big, one of the biggest problems that a lot of sales and marketing you know, organizations have is that they can't answer the simple question of, what do you do? <laughs> right? Like, well, what do you do at your company, right? <laughs> and oftentimes, we get asked that question, we start going into like a, like a physical description. Well, it's a software that allows you to complete this task or these kinds of things. Yeah. And, and sometimes people who have that problem might be interested in buying that. But that's not selling with like feeling or emotion, mm, right? It's like, abstracting, right? Yeah, like you're yeah. getting like a very tactical, you know, solution. Like we were a clothing manufacturer, and like we make clothes that will make sure that you're warm enough in the winter. And like someone's saying, okay, like that's good, but like I'm looking for more <laughs> than that, right? Yeah. So it all starts at the beginning, which is like, what is it that you do? And it's unfortunately a thing that a lot of people tend to overlook, especially God bless, you know product-centric companies and product-centric founders because yeah. we're so in love with what we do. The baby. The they baby. And the reality is like people don't care. No. Like they don't care about the nuts and bolts. They just care about like, okay, like bottom line is my need. What yeah. my need. Yeah. And sometimes I'm not even I'm not even aware of what my need is until you kind of tell me and crystallize it for me. That's the magic of mm. actually like things like infomercials, right? You're watching an infomercial and you're thinking to yourself, I don't need this thing. And then you're watching like the demo on the screen and you're like, Oh my gosh, how did Billy I, Mays is right. Yeah, that's right. How did I <laughs> yeah. live without this yeah. thing? It's getting the stains out and everything. And so it's kind of creating a little bit of this need in people mm -hmm. that is is oftentimes subconscious. The same way we kind of buy feelings, those feelings are often dormant until we wake them up. And so to your question, like it does start at the beginning when we ask ourselves, like, how do we describe what we do? Yeah. Yeah. So not so you don't even need necessarily top down say leadership. This is something that a rep can just take into their their day to day and 
know, help crystallize that for their customers? They can. The question <laughs> okay. is like, yeah. are our reps in tune enough, you know, with those mm. needs? And and one of the biggest issues that exists in kind of the modern sales realm is that so many sales organizations exist as um, younger, less experienced sellers yeah. Yeah. selling to more experienced buyers whose job they've never done. Sure. And so the question is, as a younger seller, can I manifest the conviction and the story needed to convert an older buyer? And I'm calling them up and like, I can't say I've ever done your job or I've ever yeah. been in your shoes. And so the question is like back to the, you know, what is it that you do? There's sometimes there's kind of a far ways to go in terms of that, that journey and describing it for the people in, the, in those kind of, you know, uh, asymmetric positions. Yeah. And with this new way of thinking about how to message in front of customers and, and, and really be more empathetic, is there anything that you would change? Let's say you have a brand new CRM system. Right, and, and you're gonna have a whole new way of, of tracking opportunities across the different stages of the funnel and, and different fields that you're tracking. I mean, what, is there anything different that, that you would uh, have in that system compared to the way it traditionally was? You know, before it was much more metric based and how many calls and dials, like is there anything that you would throw out and say with the new model, this is what we should focus on? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I had this, we had this epiphany at my third startup where we put together our sales funnel that we thought was just, you know, best practice, like there's a call and there's a lead, there's an opportunity and so on. And then what we found is as we were looking at the funnel that it really just wasn't aligned to how people were actually buying, right? So it missed like certain key steps like demos and research and ROI and, and the things that they went through to buy our particular mm. solution, right? And so when we re-architected our, our kind of sales model based on that, mm. it was a lot easier to service the customer in the way that felt like very natural for them versus like shoehorning you know, their journey into our process. Yeah. So that would be like my biggest thing is like when you're setting up the journey, like you have to have a starting point, but like take a look at how your customers actually buy and do your best actually also to measure the, the time and conversion rate between those steps. It, most people do measure the conversion rate as you kind of create your funnel, but a lot of people don't actually measure the time it takes to go from one step to the next. And what we realized kind of doing that was that there were certain steps that were like very quick. You know, you convert from one to the next in 10 minutes or an hour. And then there'd be people sitting in this kind of section of the funnel mm. for, you know, 20 days. We're like, yeah. well, that doesn't, that's not providing the granularity, first of all, of the analytics that we need to see. It's also not aligned to how the customers are actually buying. So that would be my biggest advice is like, look at the way your customers, whenever you can, whenever it's crystallized enough, how they actually buy and then yeah. architect your sales funnel to align with that process. Sure. And then I guess it's a matter of just deep diving into those events to see what are those trigger events it's, it's it's understanding the use case or you know how they're how they're paid so they can incentivize with what you're doing to to get them you know is it those kinds of things then you can see what are the triggers that move to the next stage yeah exactly and, and those can change over time so for example at the beginning there might be like a step where you need to create awareness around your your product and the solution that you're providing in general right and then later on there's like a business case so but then as your company matures, maybe that no longer, maybe there's like a free trial that kind of replaces that awareness problem, right? So like you can tweak the process as you go, just be mindful that kind of the, the way you start off may not be the way you end up. And actually, if you're looking for like a really great um, book or kind of thought on that, uh, Mark Roberge mm. um, and his sales acceleration sales formula. Yeah, I love that book. I love it. Cause yeah. he, cause first of all, he says like, here's what we did, but don't do what we did. You know, like just do, do what you do, yeah. like, but think about it the same way we thought about it. And don't assume that just because this is the case for the first six to nine months of your business, it's going to continue. Right. So like always be iterating on your model as you go forward to make sure that you are kind of aligning yourself as best you can with how your customers are actually. Buying. Yeah. I also like how 
you know, a lot of your, your blog posts and, and podcasts, you talk about the science of, of this, right? And, and with sales and just even like the, the specific word choices you use, like why do you do X, Y, Z versus why do you think you do X, Y, Z? I mean, what, what have you noticed in terms of the reactions you get and, and the answers you get from even just slight little word changes like that? Yeah, well, the, the one thing, and this is going to come as no surprise to anyone, but people don't like to be interrogated, right? Like, <laughs> And unfortunately, a lot of times we train salespeople as we say, like, here are the things when you go into the customer conversation, like, here are the questions that you need to ask, right? And it feels a little bit robotic sometimes to us, and it also feels like an interrogation to the customer. So back to kind of like the way you ask questions is actually very, very important. And having these like very interesting kind of conversational type you know, question interactions versus like the interrogation is very important. So just it should feel like a natural conversation between mm -hmm. between two people versus like someone who's going through their checklist of things that they need to, you know, get on this conversation. So that yeah. that's where like the big disconnect comes in is like, how do we have those natural feeling conversations? Natural feeling. And I'm sure just being able to dive deeper into it, right? You get an answer. Don't just take it for, for the face value. Just keep keep diving deeper guys like like jim keenan and uh you know gap selling just really make that draw out that that gap i mean is that is that a big part of it too from what you see it is yeah i mean nothing says that i'm just going through a checklist more than when i ask a question you give me an answer and i say awesome and then i go on <laughs> go on to the next Let me thing. find my next question right. there it is so yeah. yeah so like so so like diving in and showing even just natural curiosity like listening is a huge component of effective selling and Nothing shows you're not listening more than saying like, okay, awesome, and then moving on to the next question. <laughs> but being able to kind of dive deeper and say, well, hold on a second, that's really interesting what you just said there. Can I just ask a follow-up? And it shows that you're engaged in the conversation. So yeah, so asking those deeper questions. There's also a lot of actual science around the order in which you ask questions mm -hmm. if you're trying to get like that emotional response. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like showing the person that, no, I'm actually interested in what you have to say and I'm going to dive a little bit deeper. Being mindful, of course, that you don't want to run out of time and spend all your time on. Now we're getting more tactical. Yeah, getting too tactical on something that's not you know not that it's not important, but not giving enough time to get to the your whole entire thing. call could be in this one point if Absolutely. you're just being so specific on that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. I'm definitely. What what other books are you, are you reading, or what other things are you doing to try and stay ahead of the game? Yeah, it's interesting. Like most of the sales books that I like are are not like what you would call traditional sales books. So I like books around how people um, prioritize, how they mm -hmm. focus, and how people make you know decisions. So one of my favorite books I've been talking about for years is The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results. Um, I love Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel mm -hmm. Kahneman. Yeah. It talks a lot about these like just like very cerebral you know pathways by which people make decisions that we're often not aware of. And it has the data and science to back it up. So I love those. Um, I mean, obviously, I've written my book, Sell the Way yeah. You Buy, and it incorporates, I, you know, I feel like the best of all of these. So there's like a lot of science and data and research and, and, you know, very current stuff, but also kind of rooted in like the human behavior and the execution. So like, it's great. Like I have all this data and research that says that this works and this works and this works. So now I'm sitting down with Matt, like how do I ha take all of that and just have a human conversation? where all of these like little things just kind of fade into the background and it just feels just like we're, when necessary, right? we're yeah. just having a, like a conversation. Like it's like anything else when you see a person like play a sport, right? And you know, they're, they're taking those free throws and they're practicing, practicing so that when they get into the game, it just feels like very natural yeah. and fluid. It's the same thing in sales, but oftentimes we think like, oh, this should just come naturally to us. Right. And we should mm -hmm. say these things. And like a person says it's too expensive. And like we respond by saying this, it's like, <laughs> It's too rigid. Yeah, here are your canned objection handling responses and 
and that's just right. read them off. And that's not how people work. Like, you know, I, the way I think about it and teach objection handling is like, it's like we're sparring. Like I, I, you know, you punch me and I block it and then I try to you know, kick you back and then you do something else. And, you know, it's never, oh, it's too expensive. And then I say this and then it goes away, right? Like it's always <laughs> yeah. a back and forth because oftentimes you don't really know like what the root cause is until you kind of start digging deeper. I know, I know. It, it kind of reminds me of some of the, the key points to it and never split the difference. Chris Voss. Yes. Yeah. Um, so much to take away from that because I also feel like in, in my background, I, I was uh, a consultant. I was doing SAP implementations, uh, then I was doing pre-sales. And I, I feel like in those roles, your job is to answer. You have a question, I'm going to answer it. Right. And, and then it, it's it's hard just to get that. It's like, don't just answer it. Dig a little bit deeper, figure out what's really behind that question and play it back to them and just embrace the the silences right and then you get more information to actually then get into to, to your point on, on on sparring it's not just a uh, objection answer done it's you know just keep going around with it and collect, keep collecting more information yeah well look that's why gong with their data they they said that i think it's like 54 percent of top performers when they get an objection they respond with a question versus i think it's like 34 37 percent of, of average performers respond with a question meaning low performers just dive right into the answer all the yeah, time. Yeah. But if it's a, you know, a, a very explicit kind of objection, that might be okay. <laughs> but most of the time when we hear like, you know, the example I always give is, let's say I ask you out on a date and you don't want to go out with me, right? And you, I'm like, hey, so Matt, like, are you free maybe Saturday night? You want to go out? And you say, oh, no, I can't. Well, what does that mean? Like, how am I supposed to know? Like, and so I ask people, so like, so what would you do to find out? Like if I asked you, if I asked you out and, and now you say, oh, I, I, you know, David, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm busy Saturday night. If you were me, what would you do? Um, I would say, how about following Saturday? Right, okay, <laughs> yeah, so, you, yeah. so you, you try yeah, to So that, that one's busy, yeah, sure. Right, and yeah. so you ask me, you say, well, what about next Saturday? I'm like, oh, you know what, I'm busy then too. So now you're trying to figure out, okay, are you, is he actually just really busy? Yeah. Or, or does he just not want to go out with me? And so that's when it, you know when you respond with a question and you kind of continue the dialogue. It's the dialogue that kind of leads to kind of the end result. You know, oftentimes when we hear it's too expensive, it could either mean, you know, I want you to make it cheaper or more affordable, or like change the payment terms so that it becomes something I can handle, or it could also mean that my buddy works for SAP and I'm just going to buy SAP regardless of whatever price mm, you offer. Yeah, so column fodder. So how do how am I? Yeah. Those are two polar opposites. Yeah. How am I supposed to know that? Right. So it's. It's, it's the kind of the back and forth, the discussion that kind of gets you to the end result. Yeah. David, I mean, this has been great. I, it's going to be respectful.